Well, good morning. We're turning your Bible uh, to John chapter 3. Thank you, Adam, praise team, and our musicians for leading us in worship, preparing us for worship through the preaching of God's Word. In some churches, they believe that the worship's over when the music ends, but not at Lakeview. And I'm so grateful for that. Just a couple of announcements. Uh, We have the Annie Armstrong envelopes now in your pew. Uh, We are into that season. And I was blown away by your sacrificial generosity, uh, your love gift to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. We we broke a record here. I announced it on a Sunday night, but $361,000 was given by you. Uh, for, for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, 100% of that money goes on the ground overseas so that the nations might be glad in Jesus. And the same applies to Annie Armstrong. 100% of that money goes to the North American Mission Board, and they are planting churches where you have the least church in the United States. And uh, you all know how increasingly secular we are becoming uh, as, as a country. Our country does not need a better politic. We need the gospel. And so this is the greater investment of your money. So please pray about that. Also pray about our five mission teams. So it's spring break. Our college students are gone. But we also have five mission teams overseas over the next few days. And so please be praying for our mission teams, for their protection, for uh, logistics to, to work out, and also that the Lord would open up doors for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're going to be looking this morning at verses 9 to 15, but for context, we're going to pick up in verse 7 as we read this this morning. In John chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord Jesus Christ tells Nicodemus, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the Spirit sovereignly works in the hearts of sinners. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we recognize that most people here this morning have believed in the Son of God. We have eternal life. We have assurance of our salvation because it's grounded not by our performance, but in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we recognize we are like the man in Mark 9. We believe, but Lord, help our unbelief. So we pray, Lord, as we look at this passage, you would strengthen our faith in 
the person and work of Jesus. But we also recognize, Lord, there are some here today who may not know the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving way. We pray today this word would go forth in power to save them from their sins. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. H.A. Ironside, former pastor at Moody Church, in his random reminiscences from 50 years of ministry, essentially an autobiography of his ministry, he recounts that early in his ministry he was doing pastoral work in the San Francisco Bay Area. And, and one day he is speaking to a group outside and he noticed that there was one man who kind of stood out. He was in a very expensive suit. And he listened to H.A. Ironsides give his testimony and speak about the, the cross of our Lord Jesus and his resurrection from the grave. After uh, the meeting, this man came up to Ironsides and he handed him a card. And on one side of the card was his name. And Ironsides recognized the name. He was, a, he was a man who had made a name for himself in the mid-20th century in America uh, by traveling and speaking, trying to debunk the Christian faith and promoting socialism in the process. Well, that hasn't gone away, has it? On the other side of that card, he wrote, I challenge you to a debate... Uh, with the question, agnosticism versus Christianity, in the Academy of Science Hall next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock, I will pay all expenses. Well, Ironsides looked at the man and he said, I will agree to that debate on one condition. He says, if you will bring with you to that debate two people, a man and a woman who have wrecked their lives by harmful habits. And under the power of those habits, um, they have not only wrecked their own lives, but their families and those around them. But because of the new philosophy they've embraced called agnosticism, they've been delivered. Uh, they've, they've been made new. And now they have new commitments that benefit their spheres of influence. If you will bring those two to the debate, I will bring a hundred whose lives have been wrecked by sin. But under the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the new birth and conversion to Jesus, they've been born again and have now been set free from their sins and are now changing the world that God has placed them in. Well, that man uh, could not concede that, and he walked away. Uh, we saw last time, didn't we, that the new birth has powerful effects. He, Jesus used the metaphor of the wind. You don't see the wind, but you see the effects of the wind. The new birth always has powerful effects. But this demand for the new birth that Jesus gave Nicodemus, it renders a death blow to the doctrine of works-based salvation, which incidentally is the doctrine of natural man. You ask any person with a closed Bible, how does one uh, attain heaven? 
and they will give you a works-based salvation. And that disturbs Nicodemus. Of course it disturbs Nicodemus. Uh, This was perhaps the most religious man in the history of Israel. This was a man who had spent his life accruing monopoly money of religious merit that he was now hearing from Jesus that God would not honor in the end. And that prompts Nicodemus to ask a question, that question we see in verse 9. And incidentally, this question will now be answered by Jesus from verses 10 to 21 in one of the most well-known passages in your Bible. It's all prompted by the question that Nicodemus asked in verse 9. So in verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? How can these things be? Um, There are so many things that the natural man can learn because we are God's image bearers and because of common grace. Uh, There are so many things that natural man have learned that has benefited the city of man, that has benefited our world, our culture. Uh, Things concerning science and technology and medicine. But the ultimate issues of life, things with regard to eternity, we cannot know without divine revelation. We need divine revelation in order to know these things, like who God is. Now, without a Bible, you can know that there is a God. Romans 1 tells us that, that you can look at the created order, and if you're Conscience has not been seared. You have to concede there is a God who created this, and this God is powerful. But you can't know this God is gracious. You can't know this God is triune. You need a divine revelation for that. You can't know the way of salvation. In fact, our natural state tells us that the way of salvation is a ladder we climb of merit. But we have to know we, ha- we need a word from God to know the way of salvation. And, and so the question that Nicodemus asks really does prompt a, a, another passage from Job who asks this question, can you find out the deep things of God? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? So if we are to know the deep things of God We need the Word of God. We need divine revelation. And without that, theological creativity will abound. A kind of creativity that knows no bounds. We see it all the time. Just just give me one example. Uh, On Friday, Kevin Cosby, who I know from Louisville, Kentucky, a pastor in one of the largest churches in the city of Louisville. He tweeted this. Three atheists I expect to see in heaven are W.E. Du Bois, James Baldwin, and Lorraine Hansberry. Now, there's so many problems with that tweet. For one, Psalm 14 says that the fool says in his heart that there is no God. There will be no fools in heaven. Not to mention the fact that he's looking at these men and the, and the lives that they led and his perceived benefits to the culture 
And he is saying they have to be in heaven, even if they were scoffers to the things of God. Why would he say that? Because it seems right to him. That's what seems sensible to him. They did such important work in his view that God just has to let them in. Well, he can only say that because of either ignorance of what the Scripture teaches or unbelief in what the Scripture teaches. Indeed, normally it's not because the Bible is unclear. It's because it's unacceptable to natural men. But in Nicodemus's case, he knew his Bible. And here's what makes this such a difficulty for him. He believed it. Nicodemus believed his Bible, which we know as the Old Testament. They would have known it as the Tanakh, uh, the Torah, the Nevim, and the Kethivim. But his interpretation of his Bible had been hijacked by human tradition, which teaches in that human tradition that we are saved by human merit. And, and so for years, Nicodemus, the teacher of the Jews, had believed he had taught that um, even though the Old Testament is a theology of grace, he had taught that entrance into the kingdom of God was dependent on obedience to God's commands, devotion to God, and submission to his will. That's what he had taught. That's what he had believed. Even though the Old Testament clearly teaches that salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, and in the Old Testament, in the coming Messiah alone. But here, he's facing a condition that he has never heard expressed. The absolute requirement of the new birth. The absolute necessity of being born again, of being regenerated by the Spirit of God. And so he asked this question, how can these things be? And now Jesus is essentially going to give two answers in our passage today. And the first answer, he's going to focus on himself. And the second answer, he's going to focus on what he came to do. And so the first answer to Nicodemus' question is, the person of Jesus is how these things can be. Look with me in verse 10. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Again, Jesus is saying here that what I'm telling you, what I've been telling you, Nicodemus, is in your Bible. I'm not making it up. And you are the master teacher of the Old Testament. You should know, given the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, the universal sinfulness of man, that salvation is all of grace. That's what he's saying in verse 10. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, 
we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now, uh, there's been a lot of ink spilled on who the we is here. Uh, Some have said uh, John the Baptist and Jesus, Jesus and the disciples. I tend to think he's referring to the Godhead here. Uh, it's, It's hard to be dogmatic on that. But I believe, as we see later in John, that Jesus is identifying with the Father. He came into the world to make his Father known. If you've seen me, he will say later, you've seen the Father to testify to his truth. But notice in verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. Now, what are these earthly things? Again, a lot of ink spilled here. But I think that what Jesus is saying here is things that even though they are heavenly in nature, they they are played out on earth. The new birth. And again, the earthly things may refer back to verse 8 where he speaks about the wind and, and how the wind blows as it wills. And so Nicodemus is to look at earthly things like the wind that Jesus uses as a metaphor for the new birth. And he says, if you can't even understand these things, how will you understand when I tell you about heavenly things? And in verse 13, he gets to the heavenly things. Look with me in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven. Now, I think that's a reference to Nicodemus's works-based salvation. No one has ever built a ladder to heaven and ascended there. Except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. So again, Jesus is speaking to the Old Testament scholar, the scholar of scholars, and he continues to go Old Testament on him. He just continues to pepper him Machine gun fire him with Old Testament citations, speaking to the reality that from the very beginning, at least in Genesis 3 on after the fall, salvation has never been a ladder to God. It has been God descending to man. He continues to bring that out. And it's interesting uh, how he does that here. He is essentially saying, you don't ascend to God But what God will do, he will send a Messiah who descends to you. And here he picks up echoes from two Old Testament passages. The first is Proverbs 30, uh, verse 4. Now, in Proverbs 30, verse 4, Agor um, asks this question. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? What is his name and what is his son's name? Isn't that beautiful? Surely you know. Now I find it interesting that that text is at the end of the Proverbs, aside from Proverbs 31 for sure, but it's at the end of the Proverbs for a reason. For one, we see that this God that Agor is is speaking about, there's a plurality in the Godhead. That's remarkable. Because the Shema was, the Lord our God is one. And yet, even in the Old Testament, we're seeing plurality in the Godhead. Surely you know, surely you know that he has a son. And and what's interesting about Proverbs 30 is that it comes at the end of the Proverbs 
a, a book that speaks about the wisdom of God. Now, if we read Proverbs rightly and honestly and straightforwardly, as you read those Proverbs on wisdom, you realize that's not who I am. I'm the fool in Proverbs. I'm not the wise person in Proverbs. And what Proverbs is intended to communicate is that you need a wisdom from above. In fact, Paul will say later, Christ is our wisdom from God. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. So I find it interesting, after reading the Proverbs for 30 chapters, and we realize, wow, we need a greater wisdom than I inherently have, that you have this passage, who has ascended to heaven and come down? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, who would have known this passage? In fact, Nicodemus likely, as one on the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he likely would have had this passage memorized. Jesus is saying, you are seeing the fulfillment of that passage in the flesh, in person. Now, the second text that he alludes to here, as he uses the language of son of man, is Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. It's a very important passage. And in Daniel 7, Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, which we know is the Father, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. This is prophesying about the exaltation, the lifting up, if you will, of this son of man figure. And so Jesus is telling this scholar, this Old Testament scholar, he's giving him a lesson in the Old Testament, that Jesus himself is the son of God who descended to us, and he is the son of man who will ascend upon his victory. That's his identity. This is the person of Jesus. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? And Jesus is explaining how they can be because of him. And that brings us to the second part of this passage. In the first part, Jesus centered on his person, on who he is. And in the second part of the passage, he centers on what he came to do. In a remarkable passage here. Notice in verse 14. Again, he is... He is interpreting passages that Nicodemus likely had memorized. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Again, he's citing Daniel 7 there, the Son of Man being lifted up, exalted. There's a double entendre here. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, this is not a ladder you climb, Nicodemus. It comes by faith. Now, what is he talking about here um, in verses 14 to 15? Well, first of all, there are two musts in this passage. We saw in verse 7 that in order to go to heaven, you must be born again. That's the first must. You must be born again. And in verse 14... The Son of Man, get this, must be lifted up. Those two truths go together. 
You must be born again, but in order for you to be born again, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, interestingly, the Jews were looking for a Messiah who would be lifted up, who would be exalted. It's just that their understanding of what exaltation meant was different than what Jesus is saying here. Um, they understood the Messiah to be elevated in a way that, uh, that Jesus was not speaking of here. You see, even though their Old Testament prophesied and told them that they needed a Messiah who would bear their sins, it is clear. Isaiah 53, read that this afternoon. Because they believed that their problem was outside of them, they believed their problem was Roman oppression. They had a misunderstanding of their need. Because they saw their problem was outside of them, Rome, and not their sins, they saw their need for a king who would come and fight a military battle for them and win the victory. Now, that hasn't gone away. Turn on the news, and you hear about all of these different groups who say, my biggest problem is outside of me. Well, guess what? Your biggest problem is not outside of you. It's the person in the mirror. Well, they had misunderstood their problem, and therefore they had misdiagnosed their kind of, the kind of Messiah they perceived they needed. And again, this shows us how Jesus read his Old Testament. He read it with the lenses of Christ, with, with his own, with the lenses of a kind of a Jesusology, if you will. He, he read it cognizant that it pointed to him. Again, here he appeals to numbers. Um, it's a passage that maybe you're not familiar with. Nicodemus was very familiar with it. He couldn't have been any more familiar with it. Jesus knew that. But he also knew Nicodemus was misinterpreting his Old Testament. In Numbers, Israel was making their pilgrimage out of Egypt. And they were in the desert. They were in the wilderness. And Numbers 21.4 tells us they, um, the people became impatient on the way. Now again, <laughs> um, Paul uses that that illustration there in first corinthians to speak about how we are just like the israelites we're between our redemption and our inheritance and we like the israelites become impatient don't we well the fruit of their impatience notice in verse five the people spoke against god and against moses did you know that complaining is to speak against god exodus tells us that when we complain, here's what we're saying. You didn't get it right. You aren't wise. You aren't good. You aren't sovereign. You are the problem. That's complaining. Now, that's serious when you think about that. I tend to not even think twice when someone complains. I don't tend to think twice when I complain. I should be deeply convicted when I complain. Because notice what happens when they complain. Verse 6, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. You may not take your sin seriously. I may not take my sin seriously. God takes it seriously. And they bit the people 
so that many people of Israel died. Now, have you ever thought about this story? I mean, I, I can't think of a, a much worse situation than, than to have a, you know, a bunch of fiery serpents coming at me and, and biting me. Um, but the horror of that text, and it's intended to horrify us, it drives home to all of us what our sins deserve. Even the kind of sins that may not get us booted out of the church. Uh, I, I, I doubt that Lakeview or any church I know for that matter has ever exercised church discipline on someone who complains. And yet God took it seriously. He brought fiery serpents on these people. But notice in verse 7, and the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord. Moses being the intercessor, the mediator, that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Notice, make a serpent. Uh, this is not going to be an actual serpent that Moses makes. It's to represent the fiery serpent. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Jesus knew Nicodemus knew that passage. And Jesus knew if Nicodemus was serious, he was no different than the people in that passage. He may be committed outwardly, but inwardly he was a complainer just like these people. He was a sinner just like these people. And I believe a, a bronze serpent was an appropriate figure because... Going back to the garden, Scripture traces our sin back to a serpent in the garden. Furthermore, the, the poison of the serpent's bite, what would it do? It would permeate the victim's entire system. That's how sin is. So as they are sinning with their tongue, that sin isn't just a sin of the tongue. It's a sin of the whole person. When we complain, when we slander, when we gossip, when we backbite, it's not just a sin of the tongue. We, we have the, the serpent's poison of sin in us that has permeated our whole beings. That's why this was an appropriate figure. And to make it worse, they're in the wilderness. There is no human solution for it. There's no deliverance from it. Judgment has fallen because of a sin that they continue to commit time and time again in the wilderness. Now, significantly, Moses did not use an actual serpent. God told him to make one. It seems that he should have taken uh, a, a real serpent and placed it on the, the, the pole. But that's not what he did. He took one that was a bronze serpent. And, and why would he do that? 
because I believe it would have ruined the type had he used a real serpent. You see, the serpent points to the one who would not be a sinner, but our sins would be imputed to him, and he would be treated as if he had committed our sins. And so this would have ruined the type if it had actually been a, a real serpent. Jesus was not a sinner. And, and significantly, in both the Numbers 21 account and the point in which Jesus is making, death is the punishment for sin. And in both accounts, and Jesus is telling Nicodemus, a man who has built his life on human merit, it is God and God alone who provides the remedy for your sin. You, Nicodemus, need a substitute. That's what Numbers 21 is teaching us. And in both cases, the remedy was in looking to the substitute. Now, what's also, I think, encouraging here is that no matter how bad and hopeless those people were, some of them had been bitten probably several times by the fiery serpent. They were in a hopeless situation. No matter how bad it looked, no matter how hopeless it looked, all they had to do was look and live. That's all they had to do. And that's what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus. But as with any type, and that's what the serpent was, a type. What is a type? It, it's like an index finger. It points beyond itself to something else. And the, the bronze serpent was a type. As with any type, it's either marred by finitude or fallibility. And, and so in Numbers, Numbers 21, the threat is mere physical death. What Jesus is speaking about to Nicodemus is eternal death. That's what's an issue. And in Numbers, the type didn't willingly and knowingly place itself up on that pole. It was placed there by another. And this, this bronze serpent did not have the power ultimately to save these people. But in John, the one in whom the bronze serpent points, the one in whom our sin would be imputed, he would be lifted up by his own accord, John 10, and he does have the power to save. That is a good word for every person here today. But what is left unstated is the number of people who died despite the remedy. The remedy provided by the Lord. Uh, there, there were certainly many who repented. That's what Numbers 21 tells us. But they looked to God's provision. But the implication is some did not. Think about this. Even in their hopeless situation, dying of the serpent's bite, they refused to trust in God's provision. And that's no different today. Many people who have who have wrecked their lives, they've wrecked their marriages, they've wrecked the opportunity they had as parents, 
They have wrecked. There's collateral damage all around because of their sin. They know they're broken, and yet they refuse to embrace the provision that God has given in the Son of God. It's the height of foolishness. But the fact that the only remedy was a divine remedy indicates the fact that there is no human remedy for sin. There's none. And that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus, and he's what he's telling us. Humankind, all humanity, has been bitten by the serpent of sin. In, in fact, there's not one ethnicity that's more bitten than another ethnicity. That's why racism is wicked and stupid and foolish. Um, there's not one gender that's more bitten than another gender. All of us equally have been bitten by the serpent of sin. And the only antidote to this is the one in whom the bronze serpent points to. This is ultimately the answer to Nicodemus's question. How can this be? How can this be? The person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and what's interesting here, notice, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Um, now, he was speaking um, to what will ultimately happen. It had not happened yet in this account. But he must be lifted up. He must become the one in whom the bronze serpent points. Um, and what makes this all the more remarkable is the language of being lifted up is the same word in Greek for being exalted. Jesus knew what he was saying here. John knows what he's saying as he writes this. In fact, in the Gospel of John, lifted up always means the cross. So in John 8, verse 28, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Now again, it's double entendre because Jesus is going to be exalted as he is lifted up on the cross. In John chapter 12, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. That's John's interpretation of that word, to be lifted up. Jesus must be lifted up on the cross in order to have our sins forgiven. But what's remarkable, elsewhere in the New Testament, that word means and is translated exalted. Let me give you one example for time. Acts 5, 31. God exalted him. Same word, God lifted him up. God exalted him at his right hand. When did he do that? After he took our sins. After our sins were imputed to him and he was judged for our sins after he died, after he was buried, after he was raised from the grave on the third day, and after he ascended to the right hand of the Father, Acts is telling us God exalted him as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. What I'm saying here is that the cross is never separated from Jesus' exaltation. It is the path to his crown. And that's consistent with the Old Testament as well. What's remarkable is Jesus is also referring to another passage from Isaiah, or from the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah 52, 
where he uses this word. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now what makes that passage so important is it is the precursor to Isaiah 53. And remember, the chapter divisions were added later. And in chapter 53, you have a, an entire chapter devoted to the one who would die in our place. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus is telling Nicodemus, he is the descending son of God, and he is the ascending son of man. Indeed, he is the one in whom the bronze serpent points. And this is a word for every believer here because we need to believe that more and more and more. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, like that bronze serpent, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's a word for every believer. How can we take our sins, even the sins of complaining, so lightly when this son of man, this son of God, took the judgment for our sins of complaining, our gossiping, our backbiting and slander? But it's also a word to every unbeliever here. And I do. I know that in a, in a crowd of this size, there are unbelievers here because we're not born believers. You have to be born again a believer. And, but this is a word for you. Um, these people were bitten by these fiery serpents. Many of them had no hope, humanly speaking. They probably had bites all over them, their bodies. And maybe you're here today and you realize, man, I have shipwrecked my life. And the scripture is telling us here, Jesus is telling us, all you have to do is look. All you have to, to do is believe. Trust in him. Commit to him. And no matter what you've done, your sins will be forgiven. You will have eternal life. So as Adam and the musicians come forward, we're going to have uh, pastors here at the end of the aisle. Uh, walking an aisle doesn't save you. There's nothing meritorious about that. If there was, then Jesus, what he said to Nicodemus was wrong. Now, there's nothing meritorious about that. But maybe you have questions. Maybe you would like to pray with us. Maybe you want to be saved and you don't know what that means. We would love to talk to you. So won't you come as we stand and as we sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.